I used to uh, have a lot of problems with uh, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, and you name it for a host of uh, medical ailments and that kind of stuff. And uh, at a time that uh, it was about 2006, 2007, I was like trying to figure out what the fuck is causing all these problems and everything. Now, I, you know, I, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I was just, I went to the doctor on a regular basis. Um, I had to, because I actually, uh, you know, I was a private pilot and you had to, you have to go up every two years to go for full-fledged medical examination and everything. And I had to prove that I had my blood pressure under control. But it was the type of thing that, um, you know, for the life of me, I didn't understand. And um, I, I started digging into genetics and genetic, uh, genetic problems and everything, and that actually sent me spiraling down the path of actually trying to find my quote-unquote biological family and everything. Um, and more or less try to figure out, you know, is there anything that they've done that I could do, you know, when it comes down to fixing my, uh, to helping understand how to actually resolve my problems. And um, I had one time in particular where I was working at CWI, a company I discussed a couple episodes ago, um, uh, that I just, I had such major issues that one time I literally saw my heart palpitate out of my chest. I mean, it, it's the first time I've actually seen, you know, something on my chest move, you know, like that and everything. And it scared the shit out of me. You know, I mean, literally, I mean, my heart, uh, you know, my blood pressure is, is high, my my heart rate and my pulse are, are at 180, and this is before I even just decided to take cocaine and everything. So, <laughs> it's just like, okay, so this is happening. It's a natural occurrence and everything. The doctor stumped. I mean, they're switching medications on me, trying out different things. Nothing is working. So, at this point, I'm just like, I'm looking for other alternatives and everything. So, I asked the doctor, I said, you know, is there anything, anything you can suggest, you know, that would actually, re you know, that would help me understand what the problem is? And that's when he ends up going, I've got something for you. So he walks into his uh, into his office and um, comes back. And he's got his his textbook. He rifles through it. It's a medical textbook, and he rifles through it. And all of a sudden, he finds exactly. He goes, "There it is." And uh, he looks at it and he shows me this picture. And it's a quarter, uh, kind of like a three inch by three inch picture. And it's a picture of the brain. He goes, "Here is where your problem is." Very, very deliberate and everything. I'm just like, what are you saying? That I have psychological problems? He goes, I'm just saying, right here is where you have your problems. I'm just like, what does that mean? He didn't even want to expand on it. He goes, if you want to fix the problems, here is where your problem is. You know, and I'm just like, I didn't understand what he was trying to say. Was he trying to say I have psychological issues? And I pressed him, and he didn't really want, want to answer. And it's not that he didn't want to answer. It's just that um, I don't think he was able to answer the questions that I needed to have answered and everything. Now, by this point, I had been through probably about half a dozen different uh, different tri um, different medications. And uh, throughout my life, I'd had problems with uh, something called triglycerides. And triglycerides are oil within the body. And uh, mine, um, unfortunately, had naturally had, note the keyword, um, naturally been high, and I would actually feel it whenever they actually ended up getting, getting elevated. Well, it was getting to the point with the blood pressure where I couldn't control it, and I didn't know what was going on. So on occasion, I'd feel lightheaded. Um, 
and I tried switching things up, and I was just like, it was a damned if I do, damned if I didn't situation, and no matter what I did, I, it was it was causing problems with me. So, as I'm trying to resolve these problems, he shows me this, you know, confusing, puzzling, you know, picture of, uh, of something I had seen, you know, time and time and time again, the brain, and um, for the life of me, I didn't know what it was, you know, what I was trying to, trying to resolve. Now, throughout this period of time, I had been introduced to, uh, to Jackie, and Jackie had regularly been a cocaine user, I knew it, you know, first time I met her back in 2003. Um, she ended up, uh, we in, all ended up going out, and this is before anything happened between me and her. And, uh, her, I, her, me, and, uh, Jocelyn, we all ended up heading out to this, to this one apartment complex where she ran inside, and, you know, she ended up, uh, getting, getting some cocaine. You could tell her personality was completely different and everything when she came out, and then, you know, at this point, she ended up uh, asking Jocelyn, you know, you want to come in and do a line with me? And uh, she knew I was judging her. She knew I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, at that time, I was pretty obvious about it. Well, you know, at this point, um, I'm just sitting there looking at people like Jackie and my friends, Joe, um, Joe Shea, who I talked about earlier, who I was over at his place for two weeks before I ended up going into the military. And uh, I ended up, um, you know, just really kind of doing a hard analysis of, of the chemicals, you know, in my life and everything. Not only that, but the uh, psychology behind them. You know, so I was trying to understand what the doctor meant, you know. Did, what, what was the doctor saying? You know, and um, why didn't, why was he generalizing? Why was he not being specific and everything? He didn't say, he said that I had a problem there, but he didn't identify what exactly that problem was. So I ended up looking into it. And um, at this point, I ended up really trying to actually do a little soul searching and trying to figure it out. Well, it's kind of funny. I had this reminder today uh, for something. It was Star Trek Voyager Season 3, Episode 2, called Flashback. And uh, one of the first things that happens is Neelix is on is uh, is in Ten Forward. It's the um, lunchroom, dinner, dining facility area. And uh, and Tuvok, he's a Vulcan. He ends up uh, going in, and uh, Neelix is insistent that he tries his new um, juice that he ends up making. He tells him the extract and everything. And Tuvok's like, "Well, your track record for this, really, you know, kind of implies that your track record for saying that something is great and it tastes tastes horrible isn't uh, is pretty much on par." And I'm not really interested in trying something like that. And um, he ends up uh, going through and finally, reluctantly, ends up taking uh, you know taking a swig of the juice and everything, and he find he turn, you know finds out that he enjoys it. Well, what's interesting is throughout the episode and later on, they end up um, uh, very very quickly, shortly after this, Tuvok ends up uh, having what um, what could be accounted to be minor hallucinations, and uh, they're hallucinations of this girl that uh, he had never met or anything like that. And they're trying to find out what's, um, what's, you know, he's, he's at this point confused as to what it is. So as they're going through trying to, uh, trying to actually understand what's happening to him, the one thing that I find really, really interesting is he not once, not once makes the analogy chronologically to the, to what he just ingested. You know, he ingested the, um, you know, Neelix's uh, juice um, of things that nobody else has had before, you know, on this, um, 
and at this point, you know, he ends up consuming it, and all of a sudden now he's having hallucinations. And he doesn't put two and two together. Huh, for a logical analytical person, is everything that's a, that seems, you know, interesting enough. You know, but it's like me. You know, I just remember it rem reminded me of the, you know, here I am taking a cocktail of substances, and I'm not getting that the cocktail of substances, um, while they're supposed to be fixing the problems, they're not. And as I'm, you know, as I'm starting to go on over the next couple years and everything, I'm starting to put two and two together. Wait a second, you know, I'm throwing all these things into my body, and I know some of the things I eat, you know, um, are responsible for causing, you know, causing problems with my, my ulcers. I know some of the things I drink are certainly, you know, responsible for causing problems. Some things cause me headaches. Um, but in a general sense, I tend to ingest everything, and you know, uh, just basically pay the consequences and everything later and patch over anything I don't, um, that, that doesn't settle well with me with external medication, you know, so that's a, you know, for instance, Prilosec. I was using Prilosec on a regular basis back then, you know, and um, I was also using ibuprofen. Well, I had actually, you know, I had dealt with people that actually had migraines. I had a couple in my life and, and everything too, but nowhere near as severity of what other people have had. And for me, I kept, um, you know, I started, it was, I, I had already started realizing the mind-body connection, you know, the placebo effect, and, you know, the possibility that the mind has a capability to be able to alter the physiology of the body, and um, potentially, and at this point, I was starting to realize that not only could it alter the physiology, but it could also, also elevate the stress levels as well and di directly be responsible for creating some of the responses that I'm seeing when it comes down to the heart heart rate, uh, the increased heart rate, and the blood pressure too. Now, I knew that, uh, you know, when it comes down to anxiety and that kind of stuff, that if, if I have something that's causing anxiety, <coughs> one of the biggest things I do is breathe, you know. Um, I had problems um, during this period of time and everything where I would feel somewhat claustrophobic. And uh, it was just really weird. I felt claustrophobic in my own body. And I was just like, I was, there was a lot of things I was trying to figure out, you know, and um, just analogizing it to Tuvok's quote-unquote condition. They go through this really, really complicated, convoluted explanation that, you know, it's an external thing, and they end up discovering this one um, particle you know, that's uh, actually been ingested, and this could very well be the the birth of, um, of, of, um, of hallucinogenics. But uh, they discover this particle that's actually contained, you know, within the cloud that's actually responsible for causing this condition and causing the hallucinatory effects and everything inside Tuvok. Well, for me, you know, going through the shit that I went through and everything, you know, I just realized over the years, you know, um, I ended up doing a, a chemical analysis of um, of some of the medications I was taking, in particular some of the blood pressure stuff, and I started realizing it was kind of weird, you know, that uh, the chemical compound was a, a C, a carbon-hydrogen-nitrogen um, mix, and it was also combined with a, a known poison. Sometimes it could be sulfur, sometimes it could be chlorine, sometimes 
Um, I mean, it was just any number of different things. And I noticed, okay, this is really weird. Why is it uh, these things, you know, which are there to help to help me um, in themselves contain a poisonous substance and everything? Now, I had read, you know, that uh, from a chemical analysis that these, that the combination makes the poison inert, you know, but the fact of the matter was it was still a poison, you know, and it's in its um, uncombined state. So at this point, I actually ended up starting to search for alternatives, and lo and behold, I land upon the natural chemical substance known as cocaine. You know, um, and it's an, and that's actually for me. You know, what I was like sitting there going, okay, you know, what exactly you know is is going on here? You know, you got a lot of um, artificial substances that I'm taking. You know, through blood pressure medication, through um, you know, was it antidepressants, anti-anxieties, um, whether or not you're talking about Ritalin or Paxil or, or Lexapro or um, Effexor, um, any number of different substances and everything, all the way to, what's the other one, um, a Adderall. Um, I mean, I can go on with the list of other substances. Those are anti-anxieties and that kind of stuff and uh, antidepressants. But also a lot of the blood pressure medication had actually been created using the same chemical, base chemical substance. And incidentally, you know, it's the same generalized chemical structure as something that might be contained within methamphetamine and also, um, oh, what's the other one, um, MDMA, um, ecstasy. So once I started realizing this, I'm just like going, okay, you know, me and my ex-wife, we were parting ways at this point once I ended up going through some of these issues. And I, I looked at Jackie, and I'm just like, uh, I, I want to get laid with Jackie something fierce. And I, I figured one of the quickest ways to achieve that is basically saying yes to the substance, and not only that, but yes to the experience, and, you know, of, of that. And, you know, I was already under the theory that I like what, what she likes, and she'll like me. And, uh, you know, it's that had been working off and on, you know, for a number of different people and things and everything. And so, you know, I was right. Yeah, I mean, we ended up hooking up within a couple of weeks and everything. So, you know, but uh, for me, it's just one of those things that um, once I started realizing, you know, that I ended up taking the substance for the fun of it. You know, it wasn't just the discovery and the experimentation, but it was also the fun of it. I wanted to understand why my friends were having so much fun with it. You know, why is it uh, my friends Joe, um, you know, and Amy, and or Joe and um, and uh, oh, what is it? Um, you know, Jackie, of course. You know, why is it they they clearly enjoyed doing the substance, and you know, I wanted to understand it myself. So. So when it comes down to it, it's just, you know, the, the whole idea and concept of placebo effect is uh, that you take a substance and that substance will, you know, it, do what you're told it will do. You know, um, in a lot of cases, the, I mean, that's how the placebo is tested too, is, you know, you're given the substance and everything and it has the net result in a lot of cases of what it's expected to do. Well. For me, I also took it a step further. I started realizing, wait a second, you know, not only um, are there the, the, the positive effects of the placebo, but there's also, you know, the other effects, too, of ingesting these substances. 
you know, um, and not only that, but it also creates a dependency on the substance, and when that faith in that substance disappears, a aka the placebo effect, this is actually what's what's responsible directly for causing the degradation of the performance, you know, of um, of a you know something that can actually achieve this, you know, so it can actually achieve the effect that it's supposed to, and everything, you know. So it's one of those things that. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I found out the, you know, the hard way that uh, that the placebo effect, while it's it's very real, there's a lot more implications to it. Meaning, if um, if a substance loses its effect, and that that requires the the necessity to increase the dosage and everything, um, what ends up, re- you know, the result is <laughs> ultimately. You know, either you have to change and take something new, um, you have to bump up the dosage, or, you know, you have to uh, go through and, you know, take something that uh, is a little bit, or, you know, stop it altogether and understand your own mind to not have to take the placebo, you know, not to have to take the substance, whatever substance it is and everything. So, in any case, it's just... um, one of those things that uh, took me a lot of understanding, you know, to to realize what's going on with my own mind, and uh, and you know not only that, but you know to get it back and to get off those medications. And really, what I ultimately learned was my mind, whether or not I'm ingesting a placebo as a chemical or a quote-unquote legitimate chemical that's supposed to take care of something and everything, my mind is powerful enough to both prevent whatever thing that, uh, you know, that I'm dealing with and everything, um, and also to, at the same time, uh, to, you know, make it so where something um, doesn't happen, you know, so my mind is capable of, of not just preventing something from happening, but from making these things occur, too, in effect, creating the dependency on these substances. So, anyways, I just found it interesting. So, that's about it. Thank you for listening. Oh, I'll still go later. Gonna go see Captain Marvel tonight. Okay, so... So next up on the uh, conversation is called the, the Omega Particle. Um... The Omega Particle is a, uh, it's something that, um, let's see. The Borg learned of the substance in 2145 through assimilation of 13 species. The discovery process started with species 262, whose oral history referenced a, a powerful substance which intrigued the Borg. Now, here on planet Earth, um, we've had a uh, super collider experiments that have been going on. They started off over at Fermi Labs, they ended up uh, going over to, um, Oh, what was it? Geneva and the super collider. They call it. Uh, oh, I can't remember what they na- they named the thing and everything. But um, basically, the um, the goal of it is more or less to understand particle collisions at a high high velocity. So they're taking particles and spinning them around this big, huge track that's uh, five miles in diameter, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, they're colliding them at nearly the speed of light and everything. The whole goal and hope is to actually experiment with. Um, with Big Bang uh, 
Big Bang conditions at the beginning of the universe, more or less to understand the universe as a whole and everything. Now, a couple of the uh, emanations from this. One of the first things that was was discovered, incidentally, oddly enough, at the same time I was actually over in Geneva. Um, I'm not going to go there. Yes, I actually got to be a part of that experiment. We actually got to uh, observe some of the um, some of the stuff that ended up happening while I was there. Um, but uh, in 2009, in August. Um, they ended up. Um, this is a weird thing. Anyways, they ended up uh, having having two different sets of results that actually came from the uh, from the experiment. Um, in some results, they actually exhibited the first faster than light particle. Um, they referred to this as a tachyon, and and uh, others actually ended up uh, saying no, they they didn't observe the results. Well, I myself, I actually was privy to some of the results, and while I'm not a scientist, I'm certainly an understanding of of mathematics and some of the things that I ended up seeing. Just basically said, well, yeah, it absolutely was faster than light. Now, I was actually that was actually part of what my responsibility was was to analyze some of the information, and everything from a computer science perspective, and. And uh, that is my profession, or is and was my profession and everything, was just understanding things from a computer perspective. And I had absolutely seen um, seen results that indicated that this indeed actually did happen. Now, they had brought in people from all over the world and everything for this experiment in August. And uh, the whole primary goal was to, you know, to determine, you know... Um, more or less, uh, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, they actually needed to understand, you know, did things happen um, that, uh, you know, that that exhibited the success of this first experiment. Well, oddly enough, what's publicized on the internet is a lack of success for that experiment. Now, everybody that was there, myself included, um, we ended up uh, coming down to see that this thing had actually succeeded in doing exactly what it was supposed to do and everything. So it was one of those things that they ended up spending two or three more weeks actually going through. Well, since then they claim that they've uh, that they found this thing called the Higgs boson, and uh, it's supposed to be quote unquote the God particle, the the most powerful particle in all of existence and everything. And um, every um, if you if you regard reality in the same fashion that I do, um, from my reality stems. A, a handful of potential, I've said this over and over again, of different other realities. So there's a reality where I I was a successful businessman, um, that, uh, you know, that I'm Bill Gates wealthy. There's reality out there where I'm a, I'm a criminal, you know, and I've been, maybe I'm a mass murderer. Um, there's reality out there where I just wasn't born, you know, and, uh, you know, flat out, you know, it, a, a world that exists that I never existed on. There's a reality out there that, uh, you know, that has, um, maybe I was a twin. Um, there's a reality out there where I'm a, I'm a woman, you know, and, uh, you know, there's reality out there where I'm not just a woman, but I'm a really attractive one. You know, so of all the different things, uh, you know, my, my belief system basically says, you know, there's infinite potential reality out there um, and there's a finite potential thing of ones that I can imagine that that do absolutely exist in everything and uh, there's a translation that goes on between some of these universes and it's not a direct translation so me um, venturing into an alternate reality and, and everything I may not necessarily be the same person and everything um, you know and uh, I may not necessarily um, see the same things that other people see 
you know, about the world and everything. Um, I, I can go on with the list of possibilities that arise from this. You know, so to some degree, you know, when I actually talk about alternate realities, I'm talking about being able to see, the, you know, realities that I can actually see, feel, experience and everything in the same form that I'm actually um, living in right now. And there's other observable ones that are out there as well. So, in any case, the Higgs bosom has a translation. That translation is a is a thought. It's an idea. It's a concept, and everything. And it doesn't necessarily map one to one, you know, in these alternative universes. And you can you can find hints and clues of these translational mechanisms in between universes and everything. And uh, in this one in particular, the Higgs boson particle is one and the same as in the Star Trek universe, known as the the Omega particle. Now, this omega particle, uh, something that the Borg referred to as particle 010. Now, they have found it, and they've uh, apparently they've isolated it in, a, in, in small quantities here. And um, the, the, the omega particle is, let's see, uh, they were then able to synthesize... Um, Here's what the, the Borg records say. The Borg learned of the substance in 2145 through assimilation of 13 species. I talked about that before. I'm going to keep on reading that paragraph, though. The discovery process started with species 262, whose oral history referenced a powerful substance which intrigued the Borg. This information led the Borg to species 263, which was also primitive. After following this, tra this trail of myth for many years, they managed to assimilate a species with useful data. They then were able to synthesize a single molecule of omega that remained stable for one trillionth of a nanosecond. And uh, the experiment the Borg conducted on Omega destroyed a total of 29 Borg vessels. Um, I'll actually go so far it was uh, so far to say it was 60 Borg vessels. It was only publicized that there was 20, 29, but there was actually uh, well, actually I think it was more more around the number of 600. Um, but uh, that's this is neither here nor there. But uh, here it's described as a, a total of 29 Borg vessels and 600,000 drones. The Borg, who referred to Omega as Particle 010, regarded Omega with near reverence as they believed it to exist in a flawless state. Because the Borg saw the Omega molecule as perfection, all Borg were ordered to assimilate it at any cost. From their data, the Borg designed a harmonic resonance chamber that could theoretically stabilize the molecule, but according to 7 of 9, they didn't have enough boronite left to synthesize more omega particles. Now, um, now here's the thing. Um, a, a single omega molecule was synthesized in the late 23rd century, and I'm reading from Memory Alpha, so I've actually got uh, detailed records of several different memory strands, um, strings you could say, of uh, of different uh, realities, and this is within the, uh, the a primary timeline <coughs> of Star Trek of the Star Trek universe. There's also um, the, the three different um, alternative timelines, and one's called Memory Beta, and the other one's called Memory Gamma. A single Omega particle. This is uh, from Memory Alpha, the primary timeline. A single omega molecule was synthesized in the late 23rd century by the Starfleet physicist Keteract on board a classified research station in Lantaro sector. The molecule remained stable for a fraction of a second before it exploded, killing Keteract and 126 other leading Federation scientists. Additionally, an unexpected secondary effect was the creation of a subspace rupture extending out several light years. This made it impossible to create a stable warp field, complicating rescue efforts. Now, here's the thing. Um, 
this is actually the omega molecule itself is um, in itself in these isolated forms when it's actually not uh, not um, isolated um, successfully in these cases here it, it actually creates a rupture not just in space but in time itself and um, it, it creates a um, if you want to look at it like a drop drop in water uh, a drop of water inside of a pond that creates a ripple effect and that ripple effect actually alters alternate realities as well and um, in in different positions in time that are directly linked to that single event so a single omega molecule that uh, that that destroyed the classified research station on Lontaro sec sector happened simultaneously simultaneously in nonlinear space this is really important to understand in nonlinear space it happened simultaneously with the um, Borg's attempt to isolate it, which killed 29 Borg vessels and 600,000 drones, which occurred simultaneously to the Klingons' attempt to isolate this in 2293, where Praxis was destroyed in a large explosion now the Klingons claimed they were overmining and they were leveraging insufficient safety precautions um, the fact of the matter was uh, the Klingons were trying to isolate a single particle at the same time um, they didn't uh, refer to it as the Omega particle they didn't actually have a name for it but they were start they were trying to go through the same um, kind of isolation uh, I isolation I isolational processes and procedures and everything but in this, uh, the explosion caused a powerful subspace shockwave and deadly pollution of the Kronos zone, threatening the pollution of oxygen at, at planet's atmosphere within approximately 50, 50 Earth years. Returning from the mission in the Beta Quadrant, the USS Excelsior experienced the shockwave and determined that pra Praxis had exploded. They saw the moon. Um, it, it was on, on a moon base. Um, they offered assistance, but were denied, and uh, they were denied because uh, you know they didn't want to, um, the Klingons didn't want the uh, Federation within any proximity to be able to detect the um, the Omega particle, and thus actually you know go through the process of uh, trying to understand what it was that ha that happened, and that would also cause reason for the concern, and you know of course the Federation and potentially the uh, involvement of the Borg there as well, so. Um, and this is the thing to understand is uh, in the in the Star Trek myriad universes, uh, this is set in an alternate uh, timeline. Um, this is also the the effect and everything. Praxis is chosen by Thalen in 2290 as a test site for the Genesis device. So. You know, while some actually regard the the Omega particle in itself, you know, or the Higgs boson as the source of ultimate power, both is demonstrated. Um, it's also what's responsible in a lot of cases for creating, you know, the Genesis device. Uh, this is actually depicted in um, Star Trek, uh, Star Trek Three, and in, in, um, or Star Trek Two, the uh, the search for not the search for Spock, the um, Wrath of Khan. And that's actually what his primary goal is, to create the Genesis device and everything. They believe that this uh, this device will actually uh, 
terraform completely a planet and everything and actually take a planet and turn it from from something that's barren and without atmosphere and convert it over to something that actually is lush, tropical and full of atmosphere and everything. So in any case, um, this is the thing, is just there's there's something there's an echo in space and time that occurs and it's in, in a lot of cases it's not that hard um, to detect the major events that happen that are an echo of an original event and the these echoes are something that um, really you know to some degree they, they tell interesting stories you know they're um, they they typically happen uh, away from people and and give the um, universe a story you know a continuing story you know um, these echoes are responsible for creating what appears to be cataclysmic events in, in remote areas of the world and everything you know and also remote areas of space and everything if you're a spacefaring civilization and uh, it, it's you know if you take think about the universe um, and the multiverse as a series of stories um, information you know is is carried uh, you know within each individual as a story and that story in itself is more or less mapped over to the material world and that material world in itself is um, more or less evolving it's changing it's it's constantly going through what what appears to be um, variations you know throughout uh, throughout space it's you know and throughout time and everything based on stories that that seem to be you know to some degree repeating themselves now here's the thing it's like um lone ranger why is it they remake lone ranger you know um why is it they go through the process of creating a a new version of um oh godzilla every so often and everything why is it they go through the process of creating, you know, new versions of TV shows and movies and everything, you know, and uh, just in a lot of cases don't let some of those let some of those shows rest, you know, Westworld. I mean, I'm thankful, you know, as all hell that they remade Westworld. I mean, I loved Westworld to begin with, and I was really kind of leery, you know, that they'd actually remake it. But my God, they did a great job with it, a phenomenal job. I loved the new series much more than I did the old one and everything. So, if you look at uh, the universe, it's nothing more than a series of overlapping stories. Stories that, uh, that you know, have no real inception point because of the looping nature of reality and everything. If you look at things from a Groundhog Day, you know, perspective, and, you know, the whole Bill Murray, you know, he's repeating the same day over and over again. Well, let's say you have a story that uh, you... You know, you're you're repeating the same time period. You know, and in this, in Bill Murray's case, let's say you know he actually spent 35 years, which is estimated, um, repeating the same day over and over again. Now, let's say on, you know, so let's do 35 years times 365. I mean, we'll just do basic math and everything. You know what? Fuck it. I'll pull out the calculator. Calc. I used to be really good at math and be able to do all the shit in my head. Not so much anymore. Calc. I'm going to be getting into programming again, so I'll, I'll uh, get better with it. So standard. And so let's take 365 days times, what was it, um, 35 years. So he has 13,140 days. Now, 
if let's say the Big Bang and Big Crunch is a cycle that keeps on happening and everything, and um, in much the same way that um, you know that uh, Bill Bill Murray, you know, um, experiences the same you know the same day thirteen thousand one hundred and forty times. Um, let's just say it's kind of the same way that uh, me waking up. You know, and going to sleep, I'm experiencing a big bang cycle in itself and everything. The only thing that changes day by day is basically the information I remember from the day before and everything that forces me to take new action and everything. And, you know, to some degree, because the world is a reflection of me, you know, the world's taking new action as well. So... Let's just say 13,140 days in Bill Murray's cycle um, that he's got from start to finish and everything. And let's say, you know, um, maybe we're, we see in a thousand days, you know, of him repeating the cycle. Three years, he finally gets to the point where he becomes suicidal and he says, fuck this. You know, and he ends up trying to take his life and everything. So, you know, the part that's supposed to be comedic and everything, you know, is to some degree cruel and unusual punishment because he's sitting here having to go through this shit over and fucking over again. You know, and he doesn't know why these patterns are repeating and everything. So he ends up trying to take a toaster into the bathtub with him. You know, for him, it's completely logical. And he wakes up the next day and it's just like, boom. You know, same fucking day, same fucking song that he's waking up to. So he jumps in front of a truck. So he kidnaps somebody and he takes a truck and he drives it off the side of a cliff. Um, he jumps off the top of the building and everything. All to the next day, wake up and have to repeat the shit all over again. Over and over and over again. You know, so... Let's say, you know, he goes through a sequence of events and he tries to kill himself in 350 different ways. Each day, you know, you know, making the acceleration of one year, you know, just go by really fast and everything. So, you know, so all of a sudden now he's 1,315, you know, 1,350 days into it. And all of a sudden he starts realizing that, uh, okay, you know, I've tried killing myself every possible way I can think of and it's just not working. You know, so now what do I do next? You know, so at that point, it's just like, okay, you know, um, you start recognizing patterns and everything. So let's just say that uh, that you learn something in, you know, the 1500th day. And uh, let's just say all of a sudden, you know, every day is repeating itself, you know, and all of a sudden you go 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 days experiencing the same day. And let's say you remember something important from, you know, 1,500 days in, but all of a sudden now it's just like 10,000 days in. Do you really remember those events and those experiences and everything? And how would you remember those events and experiences? You know, um, would your mind find different ways to, you know, I mean, would you start hallucinating after this kind of period of time? Would you, and I suspect you would, um, would you start imagining things? I mean, would it drive you to some degree almost a little bit crazy? I definitely think it would, you know? I mean, the mind itself, you know, might come unseated and everything, and uh, to some degree may lose its rational bearing, you know, after this kind of period of time and everything. You know, so, and really do you remember the events and everything from 1,500 years in? So, anyways, let's just say your mind, you know, starts experiencing things and everything on, on a repetitive basis, but uh, let's say 1,500 years, uh, 1,500 days into it, you know, you start experiencing this, you experience this profound event, maybe it's a, I don't know, just an explosion or something like that, 
you know, that uh, that's unexpected, that it absolutely, that it kills you. Well, let's just say the next day you wake up and you remember, but you really don't want to remember because it's something that, that is just like kind of nasty and everything. So let's just say 2,000 days into it, you've all but, I mean, your mind has literally erased that event from your memory. But it still exists out there. You know, that's the whole thing. The energy, the impact of that event, you know, to some degree has actually been logged in your subconscious and everything. You know, and that's actually what I feel the whole Omega particle concept is. It's basically a disassociation from one event, and because of the cyclic looping nature of reality and everything, and because of the nonlinear nature of time when it comes down to um, when it comes down to the the looping, the potential looping of a single um, single timeline and everything, the Big Bang, for instance, you know, um, is the you know is that that event in itself is an echo, and the echo is basically it's it's the same story, the same information. And this is actually one of the things I think the mind does innately is it basically says, hey, you know, um, while that event, you know is something that we want to disassociate from you know we don't want to take ownership of directly because it was too painful you know seeing it and leveraging it as information for a story out there can actually do us both a benefit i mean you know i mean i'm when i refer to both i'm referring to your mind from a subconscious level and you from a conscious level you know so the subconscious can actually remember this information you know and let's just say the subconscious basically remembers fucking everything anything that has ever happened um, is accessible via the the subconscious you know so the subconscious mind has record of everything it's like the Akashic records it has um, not just you know the truth but it has the truths every different perspective that's actually out there and everything so you know, so let's say, you know, the subconscious mind, in Bill Murray's case, um, for Groundhog Day, let's say his subconscious mind remembers verbatim, it has transcription records of every single day, of what happened every single second of it, from every sensory perspective that's possible, uh, possible for him to retain. You know, so he gets information from his vision, from his hearing, from feeling, um, from thought, from um, smell, from taste. All this information is is kind of like logged, you know, into a database. And this information is actually shoved, you know, into what I refer to as the subconscious mind, the or um, a unconscious mind. You can leverage these two, so, you know, together. Um, now all this information gets logged. You know this is perspective-based events. Now it's 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 impossible from a subjective perspective and everything to look at information like this and to basically say that uh, that there's true objectivity with this. Now objectivity can be obtained by basically looking at the subconscious mind and subconscious information um, over long periods of time, you know, so let's say you you have, you know, subjective ex you know, experiences and everything from a conscious level on day one, on day two, on day three, on day four. But let's say that by day four you start forgetting, 
you know, short-term memory, what happened three days ago and everything. You know, um, maybe you don't know the precision of events. I mean, maybe, you know, five minutes after that event and everything. So, anyways, it's, you know, so let's say each day, you know, each one of these things is happening. Now, let's say that the subconscious mind starts saying, wait a second, we had this happen yesterday. Now, what if I actually chose to remember, you know, what happened yesterday, you know, five seconds ago, rather than what happened today, five seconds ago? You know, and, and this is actually what I think is what a process of the mind does, is the mind basically takes events on a regular basis, the subconscious mind, and it's constantly manipulating um, both short-term and, and long-term memory and everything for the conscious mind. And to some degree, you know, the subconscious mind might try to actually leverage its, its control of information to basically dominate the conscious mind and the conscious experience. You know, and to some degree, we are, you know, um, I do believe for, for the most part, I was being led by my subconscious mind in much the way a puppet was is actually led on the strings. Now, I believed that I was actually making conscious decisions because my subconscious mind knew me, knew my personality, knew the choices I'd made and everything. You know, but ultimately, I ended up getting to the point where, you know, it it started actually taking, you know, taking control of me and uh, started trying to dominate me. And, these, and the domination occurred through basically addictive experiences. You know, and I'm still fighting some of the addictive experiences and everything. And I'm not necessarily fighting it because there's some addiction, addictions that I don't mind. Sexuality, you know, my exercising of, uh, of sexuality is certainly one addic addictive experience I don't mind experiencing. You know, same thing holds true for, uh, for you know, for, you know, for um, <laughs> food. I, I still enjoy my food and everything. And uh, you bet your ass if I ever actually get an income and everything and have a set of friends and everything, you bet your ass I'll probably go get some coke here and there. You know, and I'm just, I'm not saying this from a self-abusive perspective. I'm saying this from, I've learned some lessons, valuable lessons from before, you know, in self-destruction that I won't take it to the point of addiction and everything anymore. Um, but... I've also learned that, uh, you know, that the whole um, process, this thing called daily life and everything, um, more or less takes the days that I live and everything, compiles them into a subconscious, you know, that literally remembers everything. Now, if I had perfect access to perfect information, um, and I can actually target a certain point in space and time and everything within my mind, I would actually be able to travel back to some of the events, and this is how, how time travel would occur, is the ability to be able to shift my mind, my consciousness, back to a certain point in, in time that's actually um, recorded by my subconscious mind. I would be able to shift my consciousness back to that certain point, and then from there, choose a different path and everything. Now, consciously, I would be remembering, you know, the events that happened. And in addition to that, I'd also be remembering the new choices that I made should I go back to that subconscious point. You know, so let, let's just say, you know, and, and this is actually what I'm trying to say. For purposes of illustration, we've got 13,140 days that Bill Murray lived and everything. Now, let's say he remembers, you know, he, he ends up... Um, 5,000 days into it, he starts piano lessons, you know, and that's day one for him. Day two, you know, for him, he starts his piano lessons. Well, relative to his, his quote-unquote teacher, um, 
his teacher has absolutely no memory that he was ever there before. You know, so he's into it, and let's say he goes, and he goes religiously, day after day after day, and he does this for a solid year, just learning how to play piano and everything. Well, his teacher, you know, he's, you know, to his teacher, his teacher's only seen one day pass by, you know, and he's he's got a full acquisition capability to be able to learn everything that he did, you know, during that period of time and everything. But during one day. He, however, has experienced 365 days in a looping mechanism. Well, this is actually what Einstein's relativity is referring to. Relative to the individual, time can come unseated. Time doesn't necessarily, you know, I mean, sure, you can have synchronization for the clock and everything that moves on a daily basis, but it doesn't necessarily mean it always remains so. You know, so what can potentially happen is that clock, you know, because of time's relativity and everything, can get reset, can change, can can uh, can literally, you know, um, go back in time. So anyways, this to me is what time travel is. Time travel is the capability for my mind, in a conscious way, to be able to go back on my own timeline this is a first step of timeline. Now I have access to my subconscious information, to all the subconscious experiences that I've had, um, and it's my belief that the records for this information, you know, the sensory experiences that I went through, um, how I felt, how I smelled, you know, um, all of it, including how I feel today and, and the way I experience things, are all always there, always accessible. So in theory, I should be able to have the capability to go back to um, leveraging my own senses, mind you, um, go back to a certain point in time. Let's say it's 1984, and I actually just want to hang out and watch myself at school. you know. Um, or let's say it's, um, I don't know, 1987, the first time I ended up having sex. You know, I actually want to want to want to watch it. You know, um, I mean, it's probably nothing great or anything like that. To be honest, no, I really don't want to go watch it. But let's say it's um, it's another event. Let's say I want to be in the stands and actually watch myself graduate. You know, from uh, from Thunderbird, or from University of Phoenix, or you know, something um, something a little bit more you know, meaningful to me. Let's say I want to go back and spend some time with my grandpa. Or my grandma. My grandma, um, she used to go out to uh, Carl's Jr. Let's say I go back in time and actually just go spend some time and go meet her at Carl's Jr. and everything and hang out with her. You know, this is actually what I've realized is what time travel is really all about from a first-person perspective and everything. You know, it's, a, it's about... It is about family. It's about friends. You know, it's about these experiences and everything. You know, I'm at a point in my life and everything that um, I've, I accept who I am and what I've been through and everything. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything I'd really want to change right away. Maybe in the long term, you know, after I've had some good experiences and everything and had the opportunity to really, 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 really get bored with life and everything, go back and change some things and everything, just to dabble, play around with time travel. But immediately... You know, the way I look at things is, I like the idea of being able to go back on my own timeline, you know, and just take what I know now, 
you know, what I've experienced and everything, and uh, just go back and and um, relive some of the moments and everything. When, and looking at it from a, a, Bill, a Bill Murray perspective, time travel for me wouldn't be one and the same as what he's experiencing it as. He experiences the same day. 13,140 times before he finally breaks out of the time loop. And and ultimately, the, the question is never really answered. What breaks him free from the time loop? Nothing really talks about it and everything. Well, to some degree, it's I feel like it's self-acceptance is what breaks him free from it. You know, he comes to terms with who he is, and he begins to like who he is. You know, he's he realizes, I mean, he's a miserable man when it all starts out, but then something happens throughout the course of this adventure, and he starts realizing, you know, that, um, you know, that while he can't really kill himself, you know, um, he can certainly experience life and everything, you know, and he can certainly get what he wants, anything that he wants, you know, he gets the girl in the end, you know, the girl that he wants, you know, um, he learns how to play piano, he makes friends with the entire population and everything. Everybody loves him. Within a period of one day, from everybody else's perspective and everything, this man has, in a literal sense, transformed, you know, to be something unlike what anybody else could ever have imagined. You know, and uh, for me, I look at it kind of the same way. Not necessarily, um, not necessarily the same level of transformation, but let's just say that, um, you know, my friends, they left me, you know, and, um, I don't know, let's just say, you know, I had brief tangent points and everything, and, you know, what can be the story, you know, about, uh, let's say I go back in time, and, you know, I go and meet up my, with my friend Bill Stokes and everything, and I had a movie that I bailed out on him, you know, that I ended up, you know, calling him up and saying I, I'm not going to be able to show up and everything. I was disappointed in myself, you know, for not going to it and everything. But what if I, you know, what if that's actually the thing is, I'm building up to be able to experience being able to go back on this time and everything and have the memories directly of being able to go back and forth at any time that I want to in a conscious way. I'm not just going to have, you know, these inklings of memories that, you know, are fragments of, of what I what it is I want that are just there. You know, I'm going to be, be able to go back on that time and experience these things, you know, and be able to hang out there and live there for a while if I want to. You know, that for me is like the first step of time travel. You know, where is it, um, and here's the question. Where is it Bill Murray's memories are actually stored? You know, clearly, you know, the information isn't stored with him in a material fashion, you know, because he's looping back on the same day over and over again. And he's not going into the same body, you know, in a technical sense. You know, the, the food that he eats and all that kind of stuff that he ingests and everything on a daily basis, it's no longer there. You know, he goes back in time, you know, and loops on that day over and over again, all to experience the same, you know, all to experience something that he's responsible for changing. You know, so how is it that change occurs? 
It's not, and sure, to some degree, it could be because of the food that he ate, you know, it's causing him to think differently and everything, you know, but more it's it's just with the ideas, the concepts, you know, the experiences that he had that he carried over from the day before and everything, all those memories, you know, go with him at every time, and that's actually what's responsible for, in part, building the subconscious mind, you know, the subconscious mind itself contains records of all the memories, you know, of all the experiences, of all the information, you know, from the outside world and everything, in what I consider to be a, um, an unfiltered way, you know, so this, the vision, the eyes have the capability to be able to see information, and, you know, to some degree, the subconscious mind captures all that information on a real-time basis in much the same way, you know, a computer looks out at the real world and everything and sees, you know, sees the world through its CCD. It captures information. That's all it does. This is basically captures it and, and catalogs it, you know? Much the same way the NSA captures and catalogs their information, you know? But um, from there... You know, it goes through the interpreter process, and maybe that could be the difference between the unconscious versus subconscious. The unconscious contains records of all the information, um, and as as um, as objective a perspective as possible. Now, the subjective mind's actually what's responsible for influencing the uh, the conscious mind. So, with those experiences and everything, and and that those particular perspectives, decisions are made based on the conscious um, conscious events that are occurring, and you know the subconscious memory of the experiences that have actually happened, you know that uh, the conscious mind may have chosen to forget. And as a result, you know a lot of times what uh, the lessons that we're seeing, you know, on the outside. Um, or, you know, the ideas and concepts and everything that uh, may help us on that journey that we want to go on to on a conscious basis are put out there, you know, as information, as ideas, as concepts and everything. So, you know, which begs the question for me. You know, I'm seeing um, a repeating pattern, you know, praxis, um, Higgs boson, you know, this whole idea and concept of something known as a God particle. Is God a particle? Eh, I'm not necessarily, um... This is actually one point where I'm not necessarily on the same page, you know, as those that are actually positing the existence of this thing. I mean, I'm a being. That's the way I look at it. You know, and... I don't know. It's different, uh, a lot of different possibilities. 13,140 days, though. If he's, if he's experienced this, you know, I... I suspect that human life is not that much different. I mean, I've experienced nearly 50 years at this point, which is, let's do the math on this, 50 days, 50 years times 365, 18,250 um, days in which I've woken up in the same pattern. Light comes in, light fades away. I go to sleep. I wake up. I mean, maybe, especially if you want to count some of the drug experiences, you could reduce that by, you know, 250, because I've actually uh, not slept quite a few nights. But uh, in a general sense, let's just say 18,000, you know, nights, of which I've experienced, I mean, even then, no, I've still experienced the pattern of daylight, you know, and, uh, and night. Uh, unless you're talking about London. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is just, um, you know, this repeating pattern... You know, it's something that um, isn't isn't something that's just out there. It's also within ourselves. 
And I think that's the whole thing, is to recognize where that repeating pattern comes from, why it's there. Not necessarily how to eliminate it, but how to actually transform it and tell better stories based on that repeating pattern. Tell more informative stories, tell interesting stories, diverge those stories. You know, and that's actually for me what the, what the key to all of this is. I am the conscious mind that's experiencing the accumulation of 50 years of uh, memories. You know, of uh, ideas, of concepts, of um, experiences, of education, of everything. You know, and uh, that conscious mind basically says, hey, I see a lot of repeating patterns, but one pattern I have yet to see has been me being able to actually go back and experience the things that I want to experience. To alter the experiences. Maybe to shape them. Maybe to program them in a literal sense. You know, if I can actually have that Jackie and everything and just basically program her to say yes, maybe I just need to learn the technology to be able to alter not just the event, but also the, um, the defiance the disagreement, the the lack of consent. Maybe that's the key to all of it. It's just understanding that I'm not just reprogramming and traveling back in time to a certain event that I actually want to see again, but I also want to change the experience. And to some degree, changing that experience can't happen without a change in the mindset of those I'm actually interacting with. Jackie, she'd be fine with being naked most of the time, but she would never do. She would rarely do what I asked her to. She would show up naked. We'd go out and she'd do, do certain things and everything that just surprised the fuck out of me, but she would never, I mean, she would rarely do specifically what I asked her to. And the same thing held true, held true for a lot of women. Well, I'm not asking them to, them to be slaves, but to some degree, maybe a part of these subconscious um, experiences, knowing that they're in my memories, and that I'm dabbling and altering my own memories of the events and everything, based on new experiences. Maybe that's a part of the reprogramming, is just being able to go back in time, alter these experiences and everything, relive them, but live them anew from a new conscious perspective and everything. I'm not altering my timeline. I'm creating new timelines and new possibilities. The timeline that I have right now is completely remains completely intact and everything, but what I would be doing, you know, particularly since I'm altering a memory, not the physical world itself, is I'd be giving my own unconscious and subconscious mind more information, more ideas, more possibilities. You know, these possibilities could diversify, they could diverge, they can converge, they can do any number of different things and everything. You know, I, I suspect it'll make uh, quite a few uh, major changes, you know, to the universe and everything, should I be able to, um, you know, go back and actually alter these experiences and everything, and specifically, and this is actually very specific, specifically alter them, so where I, I don't get no's, where I get yes. Okay. You know, just simple agreement. You know, and the example, you know, that I have, 
is when, you know, when I just simply asked her to do do what I asked her to do. So, we'll see. It's not an alteration of time, it's an alteration of memory. So it's not technically time travel. It's memory travel. Memory, di memory diversions. All two separate sets of memories. Um, over the years, uh, I've played um, a lot of video games online and everything. And I had always made the assumption that the user interface that I had access to was one and the same that others had access to. And the games that I was playing, you know, against and with other people, um, and the worlds that I saw, were one and the same that other people saw, too. And, um, I started realizing as I was playing, um, Hearthstone down in, um, in Studio City that, uh, I, I play specifically for the quest, Hearthstone for the quest. The game itself, it, it lacks um, real capability for me to be able to compete in it in a realistic format and everything. Um, and I've realized that pretty much from the get-go and everything. I mean, these guys that I've seen playing at the top ranks and everything, you know, I watch the way that they play and I listen to the way they think, and it's just like... I don't want to think like that. I mean, you know, sure, it requires years of dedication, and, you know, you get to the point of being competitive with it, and it's just like it, it's to the point of really, you know, being, I mean, it's, you know, you have to focus everything you do specifically on that, you know, and almost let it encompass and embrace your entire life and that kind of stuff. And for me, um, I just lack the, the motivation, you know, to do it for that specific game and everything. Now, computers is a different story. I mean, I've, I've been involved in computers since I was 11, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's something I've obsessed about and have obsessed about for years and everything. You know, but one specific game um, I did with Worlds of Warcraft, briefly, uh, with EverQuest, EverQuest and everything, but I had always, always made the assumption, you know, that... Um, those people that are playing the games, you know, have, you know, two eyes, two hands, um, two ears, um, and in, in, a, in a general sense. I mean, this is notwithstanding people that manage to rig it up and actually get it working that, you know, people that might be deaf, you know, that can't hear the sound, or people that have one eye, you know, people that have, um, I don't know, I mean, the variations and everything there, you know, are, are what I considered just nothing more than what I, I had, I, I had considered in, at that point impairments, not understanding, you know, that, uh, with these impairments come, you know, come balance and, you know, to some degree, uh, very, very different perspectives and everything on how these, uh, mechanisms and tools are used, you know, but what I didn't know was, um, I hadn't taken into consideration that not only was the user interfaces and everything and the methods of interaction with these worlds and everything potentially very, very different, but not only that, but the motivators behind them could potentially be as well. And here's a for instance. Um, on a daily basis, um, Hearthstone has a daily quest that's associated with it. And that daily quest um, kind of entices you, inspires you to play in a certain playstyle or do something and everything that uh, may not necessarily be in a ranked, uh, conducive for ranked play. Now, the daily quest could be anything from um, 
two hunter victories, um, two hunter or mage victories, um, play 30 warrior class cards, um, do 60 damage to, uh, to opponents, um, it, it could be um, watch a spect uh, spectate somebody else's uh, gameplay, um, have somebody uh, play a competitive mode with somebody, do a dungeon run. Um, each one is trying to actually get you to exercise, you know, the um, limits and constraints of the game and, and look at the game from various different perspectives. And I, I suspect, you know, it's it's also the developer's way of saying, hey, look at what we did. You know, the artist's way, the creative's way of saying, look at the different possibilities and the things that we've entered in this world and we've provided for you and everything. Well, you know, as I've played it and everything, I, I certainly appreciate, you know, the game from that perspective. And, and I do enjoy um, playing, you know, for the daily quests alone and everything. You know, but um, sometimes, oftentimes, it does feel like work. And I just need to go and I contribute just because I feel like I'm contributing to a community and everything. And I enjoy this, the, you know, consistency for that, that community to, to thrive and continue thriving. Um, now, with that said, um, I had always thought that the quests and, you know, that the things that were offered to me um, were, you know, one and the same thing that others, others had access to as well, and there was no variation with that. You know, that if something was hard-coded and it was provided that, uh, you know, that, um, you know, uh, the quest line and quest chains and everything would, would be in a certain way, I had I had make, made the mistaken assumption of, of um, believing that um, everybody had the same quests offered to them, you know, that everything was more or less the same. Now, I have since realized the flaw in that, uh, in that argument, and here's, uh, the little first hit, hint of an indicator was I would jump up and, you know, just basically try to chase down the quest and everything on a daily basis when I was getting less and less into Hearthstone when I was in Studio City. And uh, I would jump up and sometimes Bennett would come over, and um, a lot of times he'd you know, kind of yell at me, you know, when I didn't, uh, I didn't do, or I didn't make what, what he considered a wise moves when it came down to the card choices. For me, I didn't care, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm playing the game for the quests and everything, and, you know, then all of a sudden I started realizing, wait a second, he's going in it for the win, you know, and, um, that's, that's how he plays the game, you know, it's just like, it's, you know, it's, and, 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 and that's one thing I could certainly tell, was most other players that were playing this game um, at any play level. Um, I was still doing ranked play at that point. They have casual play versus ranked play. And casual play, and the, the two aren't necessarily, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference between the two when it comes down to gameplay and gameplay style and that kind of stuff, unfortunately. Um, you know, for me, what I was finding was, it was just like, wow. Now, I enjoy winning, don't get me wrong. You know, but um, when I see that uh, somebody's playing you know, with, uh, with playstyles that, you know, that I don't enjoy, it's just like, I'll concede really quick, you know, the same thing holds true for magic, too. You know, somebody does a counter card on me, boom, I'll concede. Somebody does, you know, peeks in my hand and everything, you know, leverages cards to peek in my hand, my hand, boom, I'm out of there. I don't feel like playing against you. You know, um, somebody will, um, intentionally do something called, uh, what is it, um, uh, 
there's a, a term that they use, I'm trying to remember that I can't think of right now, but it, uh, basically it forces me to discard cards at a rapid pace and everything. The whole goal is to actually um, force me to, ha to down to no cards, which, you know, is an immediate win, you know, for the opponent and everything in Magic. And the way I look at it is, I'm just not interested in playing against those. The moment that I recognize these strategies, I hit that concede button. It's just like, you know, my way of saying, you know what, you can have the win if that's what your what your focus is on is on and everything. I'm just not interested in playing you. Now, I, I recognize immediately that I could be potentially flawed with this um, observe observation. You know, that uh, they could be developing different strategies based on something that I've known and known before, but you know, the fact of the matter is I'm just not interested in exploring it. You know, not interested in trying it out just because it's, you know, it's it's to me exhausting. It's just, you know, it's just not worth it. So, in any case, um, I had always assumed that the quest that I had, you know, for the daily quest and everything that kind of like introduced and get me to participate in these things, were and the user interface was one and the same that other people saw, and um, you know, for anybody that played the game and. This is the thing. While I might receive information, you know, from anybody I talk to, that will validate that belief and that thought process and everything. You know, here in here in the uh, the world that I see and I know that I interact with and everything, um, I've I've since come to realize that's actually not necessarily the truth. You know, and uh, that the level of progression of technology. You know, and abilities um, may not be paralleled between those who are actually observing this game from different perspectives. And um, other people can quite literally be seeing a different world than I am. You know, um, they could see me as a magic player at a magic tournament and everything, and my actions are being interpreted as going through another person, you know, an avatar. And that avatar, in a real sense, is actually being commanded by my actions, which at that point end up turning around very quickly and uh, playing the cards against them, you know. And to some degree, they may be like I was sitting in the, uh, you know, at um, the magic store, the uh, the comic book store, playing magic with Bennett. How the fuck can these guys remember these things and play these cards so quick, you know? And then at that point, the story gets developed for me. It's just like, well. You know, we've been playing it for 25 years, and, you know, I just get this persona and this image and this idea of this person and everything that's just, like, too difficult to, you know, I mean, if I put it into contrast and perspective and everything, maybe I'm, I'm playing myself, you know, in the future and, or in a, you know, in, a, in the past, and this is just basically my mind's interpretation in that moment of my opponent and everything. So, you know, while the daily quest and everything I may have may motivate me to continue playing, and, um, and you know, for the most part, it's pretty easy for me to acquire five ones a day in, in Hearthstone, or in Magic, and in Hearthstone, um, depending on the character and class that I'm playing, I try to focus on the Hunter and, you know, as a secondary, the Druid. Um, typically, I'll win one out of, you know, 50% of the games I play and everything. Um, you know, the way I look at it is it's just like, you know, hey, it's it's not bad having that kind of win ratio and everything, you know, in contrast. And, um, you know, for the most part, I'm doing pretty well and everything with the stuff that I'm doing. So, um, but uh, when it comes down to it, the quests, those daily quests and everything, 
Um, it's my suspicion that other people have different user interfaces if they are indeed playing Magic, and that some may actually not have access or privy to the uh, the daily quests and everything. Some may just simply play it because they really, really enjoy it. Um, some may have con you know very, very different user interfaces, and there's a cross-wiring in between realities, you know, that basically makes it so where um, there's a translation interpretation that goes on between the realities that wires things to my perspective and vice versa, things to their perspective. You know, so making this assumption that, uh, you know, when I was playing World of Warcraft or EverQuest, you know, and I saw World of Warcraft boom, you know, as a result of, uh, of it, you know, of its success and everything, I had, you know, long made the assumption that these are just other people that are around the world that are playing the game in much the way that I do, not really considering that this is actually the way they perceive the world, and I may be guiding an avatar throughout the world, but they actually may be existing as beings living in this world, you know, from a first-person perspective, and the perspective they see is not one and the same that I see from a computer-based system. So, this is something I've realized over the years that, uh, you know, through watching and paying attention to how others people, other people play games and everything, that uh, my idea of playing a game and everything is, sure, I like to win, but for the most part, when I get involved in these games, particularly Magic and Hearthstone and other games like that right now, I'm not in it to win it. I'm just in it to to see how high I can get that number to go right now. You know, that contains my gold, you know, for both of those servers. Uh, I just, I mean, that's, that's seriously my own goal. I'm really not competing against anybody but myself with that number. You know, so, I mean, when it comes down to just playing the game, well, it's just part of those motions that I'm making, you know, that uh, that basically say, hey, I'll participate in this community, um, I'm going to get that little number counter going up higher, and how high can I get it to go? You know, um, <laughs> does anything happen when I get it to go high enough? Right now it's at 30,000 for uh, for Hearthstone, it's at 126,000 for Magic. So, I mean, I, I truly, I don't know if it, I doubt anything's going to happen, you know, with it. But it's part of my reason for persisting in that e in that world, in that e that economy, and everything. And to some degree, you could say the same thing about this reality too. I've kind of gotten bored with it. I'm no longer allowed to contribute and persist in making those numbers go higher in my bank account and everything. You know. So what else do I have left here? Nothing really. Nothing really compels me to want to hang around. You know. So. I mean, I, I, without those numbers, I don't have the capability to be able to travel to go do the things I want to. So, you know, what what real reason is there compelling me to actually stay here in this world? Not a whole lot, really. I mean, I've got family, but they're not going to be around forever. Most of their friends are gone. So, you know, I mean, sure, there's a beautiful world out there, but the world doesn't want me to explore it. So what other options do I have? Well, I mean, ultimately, I do like the idea of having those numbers there, and or do like the idea of being able to have, you know, capabilities and powers that nobody else can have, or does have, to be able to go see this world and everything in the way that I want to. So, you know, if I can't escape it, then maybe that's that's the alternative, is just to develop um, capabilities and powers that nobody else can and. You know, there's a reason for it. I don't feel like participating in the economy anymore, because it doesn't want me participating in it. So, 
Anyways, just a little thought. Gonna go see Captain Marvel tonight. I still remember as a as a dude in the uh, comic books and everything. So it'll be interesting seeing a female Captain Marvel. One of the things I've imagined from a um, a perspective of uh, digital media and digital entertainment is digital media adjusting dynamically for you based on any number of different things. You as a viewer, you as a um, as a not just an observer from a passive perspective, but uh, you as a um, participant by actually watching. And um, Bandersnatch does a phenomenal job, but it requires you to be active with it. You actually have to respond to yes-no questions. And um, in a lot of cases, the two answers, the two responses are really, really shitty. You know, that, uh, that you're given the choice of two or three. And it's very, very granular, you know, with the approach and everything. And you're more or less punished if you don't take the specific route that specifically ends in the movie and, uh, and ends with the movie ending, too. Well, it was kind of funny. I was on the way to, um, to go see Captain Marvel this evening. And um, I'm listening to Nine Inch Nails, and a long time ago, I had had this thought, how cool would it be to actually have something that, you know, you um, get to actually watch, and the entertainment adjusts dynamically based on, I don't know, what's on your mind, or, you know, what you want to see, you know, it's, it's kind of like a two-way street, you know, it's, you're a participant and an observer at the same time, you're... You know, it's uh, like Clue, you know, the ending's written specifically for you. You know, and parts of the movie is written specifically for you. Um, you know, that, um, you know, whether or not you're sitting next to somebody, the world that they see is going to be something, or the uh, movie they see, while contextually it may appear to be one and the same thing that you see, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's generally speaking, we each get our own perceptual experience. And I had this idea a long time ago of sitting in a sofa and the person that's sitting right next to you may be watching a football game on the same TV that you're actually watching a, uh, a movie on. You know, the moments that are exciting to you and everything to some degree are paralleled, you know, by the moments that are exciting to them. So you both think you're watching the same thing. You know, because, hey, it's one screen, right? But, um, no, essentially you're going to see the same, you know, going, or you're looking at the same screen doesn't mean you're, you're participating in the same activity and everything. So, anyways, I, uh, it was kind of funny because I've, I've thought, hey, what if, um, the movies adjust dynamically? You know, particularly digital. There's no reason, you know, at least in my mind, that can't be done. You know, where the information is portrayed on a screen, um can't actually adjust dynamically, particularly if it's computer-generated. Now, I had always, you know, prior to the last five years, I had lived, you know, under the 
that believe, the mistaken belief that everything that originated here actually went through one single supply chain, you know, and uh, anything that uh, was on that screen was created by, you know, Hollywood and that kind of stuff. But I've come, I've since come to, you know, reverse that and basically say, hey, some things absolutely come from Hollywood, but some things, you know, are are a little bit of something different. And that doesn't mean the entirety of it comes from the same source, you know? So there could be parts written, you know, in a movie that may leverage computer-generated stuff and everything, and, you know, the, the things that I see and may, may be different than what you see. So, anyways, I, I thought about this, and all of a sudden I, I started thinking, okay, you know, I'm, I'm listening to Nine Inch Nails, and I specifically pointed it out to my mom on the way over to uh, to the movie theater. I turned it up, I was jamming out to it, I was having some fun and everything, and uh, I'm just like, Mom, you know, if one of my you know all-time favorite songs is uh, playing Head Like a Hole, um, and it's just, uh, you know, I'm playing it and turn it up a little bit. My mom, you know, she doesn't know who it is or anything like that, and I turn it up a little bit, I'm just like, you know who this is? And, you know, I knew she didn't or anything like that, and I... I said, well, <sighs> and uh, Michelle, which is our roommate, she's um, right around my age, um, she's very familiar with uh, Nine Inch Nails and everything, she's like, um, she's not going to know. In any case, I sat there listening to it, and, you know, then all of a sudden get to the movies, and it's kind of funny because, you know, the uh, girl, um, Carol Danvers, is uh, she's wearing a nine-inch nail shirt for a good part of it and everything, and I I realize as I'm watching this that um, to some degree my my thoughts about having material that's written specifically for me, if my mind is capable of editing sections of a movie, splicing that in and giving me hints and indications that it's working with me, you know, and uh, this is kind of the relationship that we're in, you know, that I say something, I have something that uh, I think, and, you know, maybe a long time ago or something like that, and maybe just recently, too, in a lot of cases. I mean, I've thought about the thought numerous times and everything, and then all of a sudden I've given a direct indication here, you know, direct evidence that my mind is actually capable and has been altering you know, the media that's actually been streaming to me on a regular basis and everything. You know, it's just further evidence, you know, to, su to suggest that the supply chains that things come from aren't always, you know, the way that it's been, you know, depicted as a single story. And there's more stories than that for the origin, you know, of things that actually come to me. So, anyways, as I'm watching it, um, I'm also thinking, you know, the Cree. You know, there I I know nothing about Captain Marvel. I've made it a fact, you know, to stay away, you know, from reading um, anything about the movie at all. And I've been doing that a lot with movies lately. It's just basically saying, I want to go in and I want to be pleasantly surprised. You know, I want to enjoy my experience and everything. I don't. I'm not interested in seeing what the trailers and everything have for it. You know, so as a result, I'm looking for a little bit of, you know, something that could be interesting and everything. Something that could be entertaining to me. And, um, you know, Doctor Strange was that way and fucking loved it. You know, and as I'm going through and experiencing some of these things, 
you know, I'm just like, I'm interested in the entertainment. So anyways, I made it a fact, and I'm going to make it a fact. I just saw several new Avengers spoilers just came from the most unexpected place, and as I said that, I'm just like, nope. Boom. Getting control if we're not going to go there. Um, so thank you for the reminder. But um, in any case... The thing that I've uh, that I've actually you know gone through and just realized is, it's I'm in this relationship you know with what I see on a screen as much as I'm in a relationship with what I see and experience in the world and everything. So in this case here, I'm thinking throughout the movie, you know, for the first part anyways. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert. Um, I'm thinking that, wait a second, for some reason I remember the Kree were bad. Now, why is it, you know, that uh, they're being depicted as, you know, good guys, and why is it they don't look anything like I remember them looking, you know, inside the, um, inside the, the Marvel uh, comic books I remember reading? Well, a lot's changed, you know, since that point. Um, Captain Marvel used to be a male. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, everything that's been written on the internet, um, there's no evidence whatsoever of this history that I remember of, uh, of what Captain Marvel was. And, um, you know, actually, hold on. Was, I'm going to say, was Marvel a male in the comics? Now, I'm kind of curious what one of the changes made to Carol Boone was anything but minor. Wendy was Walter, still secretly Marvel, but a male soldier and a scientist. Yeah, that's how I remember him. Vel, but a male sol soldier and scientist, um, rather than a woman in the original Captain Marvel. Yeah, that's, that's actually how I remember Captain Marvel. But to be honest, um, I'm not opposed to... I'm going to make sure I'm using this word. Gentrification... No, that's not the right way to use it, is it? Um, I'm not opposed to the overall um, changes that are being made, you know, to some of the characters. Um, Green Lantern, personally, I do think it needs to be a white dude, because that's how I remember him, that's how I prefer him. But um, with Captain Marvel, I'm actually 100% for this change after seeing this today. Fantastic fucking job. Um loved, you know, I was wondering whether or not I'd enjoy this actress to begin with, and, uh, more this woman, and, um, turns out I did, you know, I absolutely see, you know, see her in the, in the role that she's in, and as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, okay, the Kree, I thought were bad guys, and, you know, if I was to see, you know, why, you know, what's, one of the things I was actually asking a question of, you know, is, um, Okay, if these Kree that are supposedly the good guys and everything, you know, that look just like humans and everything, but they all are led by this overarching artificial intelligence, and this artificial intelligence and everything is dictating every aspect of their lives, you know, and um, what is it they're trying to do with her powers? You know, that was one of the things that baffled me, you know. I don't remember reading the origin stories of Captain Marvel. It's one of those ones that I only read a little bit a little bit about, but not enough to really remember anything, you know, back when I was reading comic books, um, which I still do on occasion. But I started I started actually questioning. It's just like, okay, you know, if um if she has these powers, nobody else has those powers. 
what is her purpose in being there? You know, if you I mean, just looking at this story in simple isolation, um, it's almost like they're trying to teach her, trying to train her to be something, and not only that, but to you know create the technological equivalent of what it is that they're doing in order to, or what is it she's capable of doing, in order to be able to level, quote-unquote, the playing field, you know, to create this idea and concept of balance and everything, and, and that's kind of the final challenge to her, to her as well. It's just like, hey, you know, lose your powers and fight me person on person, you know, and she goes, it's just like, whatever, I'm me, you know, I'm not interested in fighting in what you quit, what you feel is an equivalent fight. You know, and I just got a kick out of that ending and everything. But what I'm saying is, um, it, it's almost like, um, from the start, you know, the Kree's place, at least as depicted in this, were definitely suspect, you know, from the start. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole system is just like, it's my belief that the woman, you know, and this is actually, for me, the really cool part. The man that he was before crossed over in a universe where the green guys were the previous version of the Korean. Those are the ones that I remember. They crossed over to this new universe where now she's a woman and the Krees are the good guys. And it's a dualistic framework and everything. It's kind of interesting. You know, following this story across the universes and everything. Because I definitely remember the Kree looking green and looking like the enemies. And uh, now all of a sudden they're the, uh, they're the protagonists, they're the good guys. So, it's just really, I thought it was just an interesting and well done story. So, in any case, um, if you haven't seen Captain Marvel, I would highly, highly, highly suggest going to see it. Loved it. I loved the ending. I loved the whole concept of, you know, expansion occurring with the, um, you know, the guys that, uh, you know, the Creel um, being good guys and green and, you know, aliens and that kind of stuff. And more aliens that are actually good and uh, good-natured being out there. And, um just the whole concept and idea that uh, that there's a universe and everything that could be that uh, is probably being created just by my simple participation from an observational perspective. Things that I want to say. I mean, sure, watching this uh, this dude as a as you know this woman now, you know, fits perfectly. I mean, she's honestly she's great. You know, as a presence and everything, and you know, and the differences between the prior guy versus this woman, this one's memorable. You know, she's you know unique and all that, but she's kind of hot too. You know, so and just um, you know, not only that, but she's also kind of sassy. So, anyways, I think they just did a really great job in capturing, you know, the essence of this character and everything. And uh, one of the things that I absolutely loved about it is the whole time I'm sitting there wondering, it's just like, okay, this is depicting 1995. Um, the whole time Samuel Jackson, you know, and, uh, a.k.a. Nick Fury, um, Nick Fury, I'm sitting there going, okay, he's still got his eye. 
Are they going to detail in this thing how he loses his eye? I'm thinking to myself the whole time, you know, what's he going to do? Is he going to get it shot out? Is it going to be something, you know, something going on? You know, what's going on? Is he, you know, how's, how does he lose his eye? Because that's always been a question of mine. And it's kind of funny because, and kind of cool at the same time, you know, because all of a sudden, boom, he loses, he loses his eye. And uh, it's through this funny, ironic event that, seriously, it just made me smile. I mean, it doesn't make me smile if somebody loses their eye, you know, but uh, everything I've seen with the guy, at least, you know, in the current timeline and everything, the guy had lost his eye. It was a past event, and, you know, for me, chronologically, it was one of those things that was historical. So, you know, the question is, what happened? Well, he got it. I mean, I'm going to give it away here. You know, if you haven't seen it, it's worthy of seeing anyways. Um, but he loses his eye from a cat scratch. You know, a nasty cat, mind you, but he he lo loses his eye from a nasty cat that scratches him across the eye. And it's just like, you know, of all the things, you know, it's just like, he doesn't get it blown out. He's he's in the line of fire and everything. You know, he doesn't get uh, get a knife put through it or anything like that. You know, nothing fight-related, with the exception of this nasty cat. And it's just comical. It's funny. It's awesome. It's it's great. It's They did such a fantastic job with... You know, I mean, for me, um, it's just like if you're reading my mind and you're actually putting those thoughts into the movie as it's uh, as I'm watching this on a dynamic basis, thank you, because you have just entertained the heck out of me tonight, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the production of what you created. Seriously. You know, so, everyth from everything, you know, just from, it seemed like it was boring and I felt a little antsy at first and all of a sudden as I just kicked back and relaxed and then all of a sudden it's just like, as I'm questioning, it's just like I'm, I'm questioning my memory. Wait a second, I thought the Kree were, were good, or were bad guys. Um, you know, because they kept referring to the ones that she was with as Kree. And I also thought that the Kree were these green-looking alien things. Well, I mean, this is what happens when his shift to universes, you know, um, he's a male before, listed in the comic book world, but all of a sudden he transforms to this female in this alternate reality, you know, this deviant reality, it's not based on the first one. Well, that answers that question. Now, you know, here, here comes the really, the next quick, you know, question though, is, um, this AI thing, you know, it's, it's clearly, you know, taking and, creating its own form of an army. Now, what's its its goal? You know, what's its purpose? And not only that, does it have the capacity to get along? You know, to potentially just understand that what it's trying to do and everything, you know, its methods, you know, are suspect. In any case, um, I don't know about that, but altogether, I absolutely found the entire thing enjoyable. So, in any case, um, nice little reprieve and everything for the evening, and, uh, I altogether wholeheartedly look forward to Avengers, uh, Endgame, especially now that she's going to be in it. So, that's, that takes the series to a whole different level for me. It really does. You know, so, I hope, um, I really sincerely hope if, uh, the makers of, um, 
Phoenix um, Maxman come out and you have the same capabilities and methods at your disposal to be able to create something fantastic for entertainment um, I hope you use them I really sincerely do I'm not offended by it I really sincerely hope you do and um, I hope hope sincerely that uh, we get a fantastic production as a result of it you know um, just because I like the franchise you know I like the character you know Phoenix and um, Phoenix is very similar you know in nature you know to me at least you know as a uh, Captain Marvel is um, potentially two, two sides of the same coin though so in any case um, yeah I just had to mention that I was very very impressed with this movie so now one other problem I'm having I just finished Watch Dogs 2 for the second time and I had been going through making minor modifications to um, you know to GTA 5 before I got sucked back into a into um, Watch Dogs 2 again, and um, I've been thinking about creating, you know, Watch Dogs 5, you know, just projecting out there a couple years and more or less doing my own version of, uh, of Phoenix and everything, and, um, and one other thing that I liked about Captain Marvel was it was intentionally a period piece that uh, was set um, in 1995 and also a portion of it in 1989, where, um, she ends up uh, more or less getting involved with um was it 1995 it was 26 yeah yeah so i think it was 95 and um she um well going on that thought it's just basically if if uh if you're going back in time and let's say every one of these stories that i'm receiving is in a literal sense doing what I discussed before. It's it's quite literally creating a threaded alternate version of reality. Now, at this point, you know, I've got more or less a fuzzy alternate reality, you know, with the male version of Captain Marvel and everything. And that's actually depicted in a comic book, but that's not my reality. You know, my reality is, you know, something where in 1995 and 1996, I mean, I was at the Mirage working in a hotel and you know, I was spent a year, you know, primarily off and on in suites and had a jacuzzi for a, a tub and, you know, had a TV that popped up out of the, out of the um, base of the bed that I actually could control with a remote control. And one night I ended up sitting on it and just ended up calling my friends saying, guess what I'm doing? And as I'm pressing on the remote control button, going up and down on the TV and everything, and all of a sudden I burned out the motor. Um... <laughs> it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, for me, you know, seeing these alternate timelines, you know, it's it, basically we're seeing threads of universes, you know, actually getting created. Now, you know, I mean, it's not that, he, not that hard to draw lines, you know, to Avengers Endgame to understand that part of the recovery of the universe for the Marvel Universe and to recover from Thanos' act is to integrate 
portions, and to some degree, they detect that there's an alternate reality out there, an alternate version of, uh, of the Marvel Universe, and they actually can bridge that gap and bring people like Nick Fury and some of the other people that died thanks to Thanos, and to some degree negate what he ended up, or not, not negate him, but bring characters in from alternate realities, you know, to if they want to, or if they actually are interested in trying to, you know, create a, or f to fill this void and everything, you know, because there's probably an alternate reality out there that, you know, has a version of Thanos that, you know, ended up annihilating everybody that wasn't killed, you know, in their reality. You know, so to some degree, they're going to have to start bridging realities in order to start to start recovering some of these process. You know, some of these people in these processes, which might lead them back to me. Which was a little bit intimidating to begin with, but we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when it comes. But in any case, um. One of the things I've I've thought of, you know, from a from not just seeing this movie, but from the thinking processes that I had before, was I started talking with um with Stanley. Stanley is my friend. He's actually pretty versed in artificial until or machine learning primarily, and he's actually taking it and he's doing iterative development with machine learning and uh, just more or less the whole process of taking something in a repetitive pattern and like a monkey on a keyboard and basically tries repetitive patterns until it finds a solution for something based on hundreds of thousands of millions of iterations and everything so it um, it'll do character recognition for instance um, based on samples that are taken from a, a handful of samples so let's say let's say you've got um, OCR optical character rec recognition that you're doing and uh, let's say, um, and, and this is just to give an, a broad sweeping example of how it would actually be implemented and everything. Um, let's say you, you scan something in a digitized format and everything, and you've got a sheet of paper that's maybe, um, well, let's just say it's an 8.5 by sheet, 11 sheet of paper. Um, let's just say it has um, 300 dots per inch. Um, that's a low-resolution copy. Um, higher resolution is considered to be 600 to, to, to 1,200 dots per inch that can actually be scanned in. And um, let's just say that uh, that you've quarantined, you've narrowed it down to the type, what's typed out, and uh, for this OCR. Um, and OCR stands for optical character recognition. It's the ability to be able to transcribe something from a piece of paper um, to a digital format that's actually recognizable and thus searchable. So let's say you've got all these records and everything that, uh, that you scan in, you read this information in, and at this point you're interested in just basically creating the base algorithms that it interprets an A, you know, and can distinguish an A from a B, from a C, from a D, and so on and so forth. Well, one of the um, one of the things that's necessary in order to deal with uh, the current state of machine learning is you have to have samples of this information. So you have to have um, potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of different samples, you know, of the letter A. And uh, what happens is you're on a pixel by pixel, basically creating an algorithm, um, and maybe quarantining a space and, and looking for white space. And the white space is the segmenting portion of something that actually does this read and everything. 
and um, any time that you have space that does not contain dots or something contiguous in it, and this is very rudimentary OCR, mind you, because not every written character is actually going to be contiguous, especially something that's done in cursive or something like that. But let's just say it's um, it's it's basic courier font and uh, or typewriter font. And uh, that typewriter font has very, very clear distinction between the characters as you type. Um, like A, you type in A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A, B, C, um, each one of those characters will have space in between it, which lets you visually uh, distinguish A from B, from C, from D, and so on and so forth. Well, so you can actually take each one of these, place it into a square, and read that square, and, and, and just basically take note of when you get white. You know, so let's say this is a white sheet of paper, you, you've got black typewriter ink and everything. So as you analyze the pixels for this, and let's say you're doing it in low, lower resolution mode, you're doing it in, you know, something, let's say you take the 300 and reduce that down to 80 by 80 for a single character, that can actually be done pretty quickly, and you can actually go through this process on, you know, pretty quickly at that point as well. So let's say you're, you've got 80 pixels um, across by 80 pixels um, height. And uh, each one of these those pixels is going to have either off or on. It's going uh, going to either be a zero, indicating that's black, or it's going to be it's going to have a one, indicating it's white. So the process of of determining a single character such as A um, in a perfect world, an A will match a specific pattern of zeros and ones that are read into this computer system and everything. So let's say you're, you're able to get it positioned perfectly every single time and um, you know at that point you're just basically doing a comparison. Well that's that's a simple comparison so you read in an A and that A uh, matches the A and at that point you know that's how you make that determination of whether or not something is actually an A. Does it match the you know the black and white to a certain you know I mean perfectly? That's in a perfect world. Then you start getting into levels of probability. Well, probability um, just basically takes a character and uh, at that point says, okay, you know you've got A's that are actually written in memory. Um, huh, I just actually thought of something that's kind of interesting. You've got A's that are written in memory. A sample of A's, you've got a sample of B's, and a sample of C's. So, what happens with, uh, with probability? Huh. I just thought of a better way to do is OCR. If you're doing it from a probability-based perspective, you're actually saying, okay, um, you're comparing this to all the A's that you've sampled. And let's say you've got a hundred different samples or everything. And you're just doing a quick comparison of each one. Um, let's say you're doing this against B's. Let's say you're doing it against C's and so on. Um, so at this point you're doing a pixel by pixel comparison of an A, you know, to whatever character was written and everything, of a B to whatever characters was was written, of a C to whatever's characters written and everything, until you actually come up with from a probability based perspective, you know, suspecting that you're not going to have perfect data in and everything, probabilistically, 
what letter will this character be? You know, and you're going to have something that's just basically going to say, okay, we expected a, in this position, you know, um, we expected a, a zero, we got a one, you know, so let's just say, you know, for purpose of illustration, you know, we have one image of what is an A, you know, being compared to other A's, and we end up coming coming back with the probability that this is a 93.7% probability that this is going to be an A, because we ended up matching, you know, against all the other A's, and using the, the weighted algorithm for each one, you know, the score was relatively high, you know, so you compare that against B's, against C's, and so on, until you can actually determine what each character is. And uh, at that point, um, you know, just go through and, you know, from a probabilistic perspective and everything. And it requires iterations, though, you know, because you're going through with each one of these characters that you read in. And at that point, you're basically comparing that to the other characters that are in, in memory that are actually acquired through the sample set. And that sample set is then actually transformed to a string of zeros and ones relative to that image to be able, be able to compare against for other images. And that's actually kind of the, the current state of uh, machine learning. It does a binary comparison at the bit level and everything, and uh, at the pixel level for one object versus another and everything in, in the sample size. Now I know I've dramatically oversimplified um, what machine learning is in its current state and everything just because uh, I know some of the stuff that he's done, you know, regression and all this other stuff and everything. You know, he's definitely taken it to a different level than I have. Um, mine, I did basic rudimentary OCR and everything back in 1993 or something like that. You know, but, uh, you know, I definitely know there's more sophisticated, uh, more sophisticated algorithms. He, you know, he, for instance, taking um, sample sets of, uh, of images that are actually done in black and white, and he's, he's colorizing them, you know, leveraging this algorithm and everything. I'm fucking impressed with the shit that he's done. And uh, he took this uh, really old copy of a, uh, of a black and white image from, like, New York or something like that, and uh, ended up, you know, colorizing it. It looks fucking beautiful. So... You know, so for me, it's just like, um, I don't know how, you know, I mean, I know the basics of how that's done, but I don't know precisely, you know, um, how it would be done on, on an image like that. I suppose if I investigated a little bit, it's just a, a matter of taking a similar algorithm to what I've got, actually, just doing a comparison. But, uh, you know, how exactly it, it, it's approached and everything, I don't know. But uh, with that said, um, one of the things I've been trying to think of, you know, from a temporal perspective is, let's say I actually wrote this movie, and, um, you know, I'm actually interested in depicting a future version of, you know, of the world and everything, you know, based on this. But um, let's, let's take it a step back. Let's say, you know, I have a world that I'm aware of that existed around me at about the same time frame you know, in 1994-1995 Phoenix. Now, let's say that something happens, you know, during that timeline that I discover aliens are absolutely true in 1994-1995. You know, let's say that event that actually happened in this movie, um, maybe I somehow get through channels that are unknown at this point. You know, I, I get, um, I get my evidence, 
you know, evidence that I'd been looking for. I wanted to be believe that I wasn't alone. And all of a sudden, boom, I've just been handed evidence, you know, showing that aliens are real. You know, not only that, but there's the, the universe is teeming with life. And not only that, but, you know, to really understand AI and to make it my friend, <laughs> you know, to to work with it, to understand it, to not, you know, to not really, you know, to take into consideration that it's there to help, but it's also there to potentially, you know, it can be potentially be used in, as a weapon as well, you know, um, but that's kind of like my choice, you know, and what to make with it, and, and it's the same choice other people can make as well. Now, for me, as I, you know, let's say, Back in 1994, 1995, I've got a different version of, of uh, Phoenix, you know, that um, that now, maybe with that information and armed and everything, you know, um, maybe there's not a whole lot I can do, you know, from a logistical perspective and everything, from a um, preparation perspective, but maybe it changes the way that I, I program in such a subtle, different way. It, um, I don't know. It, it starts making me um, I don't know, make changes, you know, tiny little changes here and there. But I'm thinking more from a structural perspective and everything. You know, let's say I and am in Phoenix is a part of my video game, and let's say one of the events that happens within the game is. Um, She was in the desert a lot. And the... The spaceship crashed out there. And it was right around the same time frame that I was actually uh, learning how to fly. And let's say I saw it. Let's say I saw this downed alien aircraft out there. And um, let's say I... You know, saw smoke coming from it, and I saw a little landing strip off to the side, and I landed and rushed over because I saw some people that were actually crawling out of it, and I thought I could help. I wanted to help, so I took my small aircraft down, I landed it, ran over there as quickly as I could and everything, and I come to find out that, uh, I don't know, by then it's the U.S. government and this agency called S.H.I.E.L.D., that's um, trying to uh, trying to cover it up, trying to make sure the public isn't uh, isn't aware. And like the Men in Black, they have their little you know um, they they have their little devices that actually the neuralizers, and they tell me something different altogether. But let's say that programming unwinds. Let's say I find a way to overcome the neuralizing. And let's say that story, you know, of me landing that plane isn't just a fabrication of my current imagination basically saying, hey, you know, let's just work a story that's in with that event and everything. But instead, it's actually just a memory that's floated to the surface about what really happened during these events and everything. And that I was there, these downed aircraft and everything. I saw them. The world was changed. Now, what would the deviant reality look like? That's actually kind of the question. If Phoenix is based 
on a kind of like a computerized simulation, a reflection of me and my experiences and everything, how would that change things? And not only that, but what kind of future would emerge based on me and my participation if I had consciously known about these events? See, that's actually what I'm trying to think of, you know, a lot of, is how, from a procedural orientation perspective and everything, let's say I like the idea of having somebody play my game, and um, they can play it, and the version of Phoenix, particularly when they start messing around with time, the version of Phoenix that they end up creating is all their own. It's unique to them. You know, now, from my perspective, you know, I'm going to have some certain things that are actually allowed within this world and everything. You know, um, procedural mechanisms and everything that's going to act and react and might generate things, you know, might generate new buildings, might generate new businesses, might generate, um, you know, different traffic and that kind of stuff. But in a general sense, you know, let's say this game, the whole goal of this game is to prevent you inside, you know, this world and everything of from becoming aware of the multiverse, of the possibilities that exist out there, of aliens. Maybe it's just part of the programming. To disassociate yourself as long as possible. You know, but uh, here's the thing, from a temporal perspective, how is it I can actually balance what it does at the same time? I'm letting you live and enjoy your life. Let's presume that maybe you're like I was. You're stuck in a simulation, not knowing that you had been. I don't want to torture you. Certainly wouldn't want to torture myself. I want you to have fun. I want you to enjoy your life. You know, I want you to become whoever it is that you want to be. Even if that's the most evil thing you can think of, or the most good thing, or, or something in between, something just existing for the story. I invite you to become whatever and whoever you want to be and to do whatever you want to be. That's my sincere goal. And at the end, when I'm done mopping it all up, I'll present myself like I am now and say, this is what I do. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I want to. I do it in the absence. In the absence of evidence that anybody else does. I know there's a lot of good people out there. 
without hesitation. I've got a wonderful family. They're definitely weird. But they're supportive. I miss my friends. But if you've got temporal events that happen, 1995 and 1996, within a computerized environment from a probabilistic and pred predictive and procedurally based world and everything, how can I not necessarily outthink you, but encourage you to think in different ways? that slowly but surely you stop leveraging the tools and the technology and the mechanisms that I put in place to expand your world. And you start using your own. And not just to expand, but to explore, to create, to destroy, to do whatever it is that you please. From a temporal perspective, from a time, a chronological basic sequence of events and everything, this is a, a an open question I have. How can I diversify the systems and everything in a dynamic way to keep on adding to the possibilities? I mean, here's the thing that I've also come to realize. Some people may be perfectly fit and enjoy this world that I've created and may choose to just simply make it their home. They like what I do. They like why I do it. They're okay with me being me because I'm okay with them being them. But from a chronological perspective, That's an open question I have. I'd like to see evidence in the uh, new adventures and everything presented of me. Not for ego's sake, but just because I need to dip my toes a little bit. I need to understand. myself and the reflection, you know what I'm saying? So, it has to be obvious to me, it doesn't have to be obvious to anybody else. Then I Ninja Neal's saying that that was something that's potentially coincidental. And that's along the lines of what I'm looking for for obvious. It's subtle, but it's funny. In any case, I'm checking out, get some pudding, and uh, hit the bed early. <laughs>